1: I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. My guest on this episode is Rihanna Lin, the founder of Journey Foods, a food tech company that supports cutting-edge product management and data services for food businesses. Journey Foods' portfolio intelligence and lifecycle management software for food development and innovation helps companies address and manage the complete life cycle of products from ideation to the marketplace. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Rihanna Lin, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast.
0: Grateful to we'll be here.
1: I'm so glad we finally connected. I feel like um, we've orbited similar circles. And uh, uh, I think it's it's um, it's great that we get to finally uh, sit down for a chat. Uh, so much ground to cover here. So I'm going to have to be very uh, selective in how I approach this conversation because we unfortunately don't have tons of time. But uh, why don't we start with where and how did you get passionate about food? Because uh, the reason you both, we both are here is because of your interest in food.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for asking that. Um, I just, I literally just, um, I was on a Zoom call and I was checking in with my grandmother, uh, whom I'm very close to. She's one of my best friends. Um, you know, my grandparents actually helped me become passionate in food at a very, very early age. I can first memories I would say were like between six and eight, particularly with my grandmothers who I, I talk about more and more now in my food journey. Um, my dad's mom, 50 year, 50 year yogi, she's 90 years old, a couple months ago, and uh, she's been vegetarian and then vegan almost the same amount of time uh and you know she used to be the odd one in the family because she's she's african-american she's black you know sort of migrated to chicago a few decades back and um you just don't get like a black yoga teacher and vegan back in like 80s right so people were always like she's sort of the weird grandmother but she also she always told me about like antibiotics and food and i always thought like wow she's Sixty years old, seventy years old, and still teaching yoga class. Like there's something there. Like I was like starting to watch her pretty young. And then my other grandmother, my mom's mom, she grew up on a farm in Alabama and migrated here to migrated uh, to Chicagoland area in the '60s as well. And she sort of kept that same lifestyle, farming, gardening. Uh, growing zucchinis and things, you know, at a young age. And so I got that experience too, which was sort of different than, you know, a lot of my, my classmates. Um, but she was, she was the opposite of that grandmother. Lots of meat, lots of, you know, processed, baked goods. And she also was um, sort of financially more well-off, right? And so what's been interesting is sort of to track their health and community over the past 30 years Um, and both of them in ways have been entrepreneurs and uh, got me very interested in food very early on and I got to become closer to my grandfather when I went to school in North Carolina for college. Uh, He was a local meat uh, and fruit distributor in Virginia and I would spend drive up and spend weekends with him and learned a lot more about hunting and distribution, uh, you know, mid-town, small-town, medium-town food systems. I learned about, you know, the quality of good deer meat and deer sausage. And so my grandparents were such an integral part of my life early on, and um, I think about their impact today. And I had other food, uh, other family members that were food entrepreneurs that, you know, helped me become an entrepreneur earlier on in my career after undergrad. Um, but that passion and that, that te- those teachings um, were, were as early in elementary school as I can remember.
1: Interesting to see the influence of uh, your family on what ended up becoming, not just your early entrepreneurial endeavors, but uh, uh, I, I think we can follow a through line from that influence right down to some of the work you're doing these days. Um uh, Your first business, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, a juice bar or a chain of juice bars that you started with your uncle. Was that while you were in college or after you graduated?
0: That was right after sort of starting grad school in Chicago. Actually, I did an interview recently, and I realized it wasn't my first. I was developing websites for a lot of uh, e-commerce shops uh, in undergrad. But my, my official first business that I really marketed um, and sort of was known as a young entrepreneur in the press was the chain and two spars with my uncle. We we uh, re, re renovated a Jamba Juice that had closed for about two years, uh, and then the country's second largest Whole Foods decided to come to Goose Island, Chicago, which was a, a old sort of Cabrini Green stomping grounds. Uh, known as um, you know you know project sort of like poor inner city now is one of the most expensive places to live in chicago uh, whole Foods came there in 2011 and we said well this is a perfect location uh to to finally renovate a, a jamba juice and you know within six months we were killing it i was built a shopify site i was like it's so crazy thinking about what shopify is today as a multi like a a 10-figure company and, um, or, you know, nine-figure company and and what it, or no, let, let me think about this. It's what, 300 billion now? 300 11 billion. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Sounds like that. Yeah. it's so a lot it's of like zeros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was so clunky and I was like a really early user, but we were, we were selling Juice like crazy all over Canada. I, I just got it really hacking there, and uh, we we achieved um, you know million dollars in revenue in a very short period of time. But we were also pissing a lot off a lot of rich people when they were buying their juice cleanses and cold press carrot juices, and we weren't doing like high pressure pasteurization or any type of like shelf stability or just like you know freeze it put these ice packs on it please drink it in three days and so when you start having 300 bottles in plastic bottles which really pained me of carrot juice going bad um I mean I I had to learn a lot about the supply chain in, in a very short period of time
1: Oh, yeah. Juice is a tricky, tricky business, uh, which has gotten better thanks to some technology over the years. But, um, you know, I'm sure you learned a lot of interesting lessons there. Well, how would you categorize, um, and this may seem like a gigantic question that can probably take up an entire hour just to answer, but in your point of view, based on your experiences and the knowledge you've gathered with that company and other work you've done over the years, what do you think is wrong with our food system today? And and the reason I asked that question just for some context is because often the solutions we bring to the problems with our food system are informed by how we view the problems or what problem we we, we view in the first place, right? So everyone comes to the food system and trying to tackle some of our issues uh, based on some of their value sets, but also what they... Uh, prioritize as being the the biggest challenges that we need to tackle. In your opinion, or from your uh, vantage point, what do you think is wrong with our food system uh, that makes you so passionate about working in it and solving some of its problems?
0: Yeah, you you know, I think it's it's interesting you bring that up. And uh, of course, I'm going to be biased and sort of lead into like, why we do what we do at Journey Foods now. But, you know, it's just, it's human intelligence. It's kind of like, us trying to solve race right now. It's like very complex racism, right? Mm -hmm. Like we were all sort of living in our own pods till a few hundred years ago. Let's just like make it simple. Same thing with grocery stores and packaged and processed manufactured foods. Like until World War II, until sort of the scaling of grocery stores, like 1940s and 50s, like we weren't really dealing with the types of food products that make up you know, more than 70% of our daily intake every day, All right, We were sort of focused on uh, su- sustaining our families through traditional processes that have been around for, um, you know, thousands of years, essentially. And so um, the way I look at it is like human experience and intelligence has not been able to solve a problem of like massive proliferation of population, in 70 years. And so um, as we globalize much faster, as we figure out GMO foods, as we try to feed people and put education and school lunches and all these different things in place that we really didn't have to before, um, we're just running into so many barriers of intelligence. And then on top of that, we put in like emotions because there's so much food connected to like emotions and sensory and just like, you know, our, 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 our sort of daily um, well-being and lives that um, it's become just like more complex than we could have ever projected. And so um, the biggest for us right now is for I think we need to sit back and really think about the fact that. And be honest about the fact that we don't have that many answers. And we can't keep pushing and pushing if we don't have like real, raw, intelligent, patient conversations that are diverse as well. I mean, before we started uh, chatting, we had a a brief conversation about like one size not fitting all. And um, I often talk about the fact that like our nutrition system, the way we think about food and nutrition is. Harming a lot of people every single day in this country alone. I mean, we, we I'm sure you've talked about it, or, or some of your listeners know that, you know, dairy, for example, is harming 70% of the population every single day with the inflammatory properties of consuming that because that's not what we consumed, you know, 100 years ago, 400 years ago. Um, when I started my first food company, I was actually a genetics researcher at University of Chicago, and we would talk about the diets that we had, you know, in the 1800s, 1700s, 1600s, that had existed prior to that for a couple millennia. And now we're sort of trying to do a one-size-fits-all food pyramid for everyone in this country, and we just, uh, genetically, it's just not it just doesn't make any sense and we and most scientists know that so we're fighting you know government and bureaucracy versus capitalism versus genetics right now and it's just a pretty large failure
1: yeah if you really think about the way the food system has evolved since uh i guess you can say world war 2 um it has been you know, I've said this probably before, but it it has evolved for the singular focus of producing the most amount of food at the cheapest possible cost. And exactly, and if you and if you look at the way the, the food system is organized, it's you know I, ideally it should it should uh, it should meet the needs of people, but it wasn't designed to meet nutritional needs. It wasn't designed to take into consideration the impact on natural resources. Uh, or its outputs, or the use of antibiotics and artificial uh, and genetically modified ingredients. It really just has a simple purpose, which most people sometimes uh, forget how we got here, but it wasn't designed to be this. uh... And the worst part, I think, is that it doesn't really do a good job at feeding the world or even taking care of people who work within the system. So that's the, the real irony in all of it. Uh, When you view the food system, I guess it's a variation of my previous question, but uh, uh, I think of an important subtlety in it, which is uh, what values do you bring uh, to the forefront when you are looking at some of these challenges with how the food system has evolved and how it potentially needs to pivot going forward?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think... You're exactly right. And I, I love to talk about how food system is banking on margins and satiation. Those are like the two core areas that we focus on. Like, do you feel full? Can you afford it? Can we afford it as a business? Like, and then there's so many people that get lost in that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me for the value now, more recently has been on the sustainability of it you know, the greenhouse gas. Uh, I mean, I've always cared about those things, but I was really focused on, like, nutrition and costs before that. And I think in so many ways, we spend too much money and too much time, unfortunately, focused on, um, like, the sensory elements of food. And I know that that's, like... um that's an important part of human evolution: is to like figure out if, if something tastes bad, maybe it's toxic for me; it'll kill me, mm-hmm. right? And it's for the most part still rings true today. But then we sort of put too much focus on sort of the sensory elements and the rushes of of you know a quality, high, pleasurable experience with color and. Sugar and those things, have we went a little bit too far, I think. And so, we essentially hacked the brains and the microbiomes of like three billion people in that process. And now, we have to figure out how to like unhack that back, um, in a way, um, diversify our food and give people and bring people back to like the original nature of like how, how food was grown and developed. Um, prior to a lot of this uh, sort of industrial, this industrial revolution in food. And so for me, those are where my values are. It's like, how can we bring back the, you know, nutrition and sort of affordability, but like unhack our brains and bodies around what capitalism has infused into food over the past, especially 30 years.
1: That's a great way of putting it. I kind of, it's like reprogramming the way, uh, we kind of think of food and what our taste buds have gotten used to, um, and and showing what we put, po- what what it you know we've just gotten accustomed to unnatural mm. bursts of flavor and ideas of what food needs to be and doesn't need to be, and it's not even that old. These 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 viewpoints have existed only for the last seventy odd years. Within the larger scheme of things, it's really a blip if you think about it. So if you want to be hopeful, but you, know, yeah. Yeah, you can look at it but that way. You know way. what's
0: interesting is like we just haven't put enough research into it. Like one of the earliest sort of eras in my life that impacted me around food was to spend time traveling to – Developing countries and regions, and in and, and rural towns and in other countries, and to see that there were like the there was almost an innumerable amount of fresh food either spoiling or growing or in carts, fruits, um, just like the a beautiful bounty of things for these people that are living, you know, um, pretty much in poverty. And you send someone to these countries or you start to travel and you get the, the, the sort of um, opportunities to travel. Especially now, uh, millennials, we've been able to travel more than ever and put more miles behind us than, than ever. And we start to taste these fruits and vegetables and things that we like. I, at least I didn't have growing up in Chicago. And then you realize, like, wait, like there are bananas that taste like this. And I didn't have, you know, any of, the, I never even knew these many bananas existed. They had all these different flavors and shapes. And I think that we just, like, don't understand that there are people living in other parts of the world that, like, maybe haven't been as exposed to what we've done. And, like, if we put a little bit more research into valuing that, then it's possible that we don't have to have the same reliance on, like, commodity sugar. For example, and so um, I, I think it will take a a little bit of um, sort of government intervention, unfortunately, because some people are going to lose a lot of money. Um, you know, we're going to have to diversify our land to to bring a, in, in in like a, several billion acres worth of new crops into rotation but um yeah it's it's all it's all something that i think that we need to continue to have conversations around and focus on sort of like unhacking us
1: and having the global view is very important too i mean i i think what what you brought up is a very important point i've seen it I, i i grew up in in india in the 80s and 90s and uh when i was growing up it was mostly home-cooked meals and real food and you could see that start to shift I, I, I haven't i've been in the u.s now for over about 20 years now but uh, when i go back now i notice that it, it the the diet there resembles more of the western diet than it does with the traditional diet and that's starting to happen as as populations move into middle class you see the same trends that happen over here in the U.S. start to now um, spread like a disease across the world I mean processed foods and fast food and uh, it's really fascinating
0: you know it's interesting as you think about it it's almost like um, our education system too right like I I, what's been so much so interesting as you talk about India and as we bring on more customers from India at uh, Journey Foods. Um, so I follow like food tech hashtags on Instagram and, and, and Twitter and things. And there are a lot of Indians that use Western food science and educational pro- like curriculum to develop food today. And I think that like could be a, a another part of it. Like, do, are we do we have sort of this like white male gaze on food science and manufacturing that's also become um, sort of it's like too efficient in the industry.
1: That's fascinating. So why don't we to get into Journey Foods? I mean, I think this is a, a, a interesting point in the conversation for us to talk about the work you're doing now. What is journey foods and and how did you come up with this idea for what is now the platform that is journey foods
0: yeah so after i started juice bars i launched some food traceability companies to help us internally turn into external companies and got went through a couple acquisitions worked at google and directed a venture fund uh, cleveland avenue with the former ceo of mcdonald's we uh, early lead investors in Beyond me through IPO and many other great companies now. And um, these companies were still facing lots of issues with R&D and sort of time and resources on improving their products, even if they started out with a great mission. So the goal at Journey Foods was one, bring better design and data to the food industry we still have these very old clunky traditional processes when it comes to managing inventory to managing supplier networks and all these things and so i wanted to like bring a little bit of that energy to um clients and partners early on uh, and then the, the big goal really was focus of Turning foods is save companies time and money as they find and fix food science and supply chain, uh, problems and opportunities. And the way we really focus in on that is providing nutrition, sustainability, and cost data for ingredients and products and packaging that are key to improving, um, and meeting sort of consumer and company goals. Many companies today spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and several months to several years reformulating or formulating their products. And we want to lower those to, you know, weeks and months um, and, and really cut the cost to fractions in that. And so in, in some ways it's challenging because it's a lot of data, a lot of uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence that we have to push in there. But, you know, my idea has always been like, how can we shape Work, the way people work, the traditional processes of work when it comes to food management, food uh, formulations, food R&D. And um, I know that we will replace and are replacing food scientists and, and other people in the industry. At the same time, we're gonna help companies would save a lot of money, and more than that, we're going to help bring more products to the market that millions of consumers eat every single day at a much faster clip. And so, I'm, I think it's much more of a net positive in providing the key data and workflows that go back to what I mentioned, or originally mentioned in in this interview, is that like our human intelligence is not prepared to solve the many issues and stressors of our food, of our, of our bodies and of our environment with how we've had to rapidly accelerate and scale food products over the past 70 years.
1: And so in the development of, um, of your tool or your platform, how do you gather that data? Because, you know, uh, I I totally see the problem. Um, I feel like food manufacturing and formulation uh, and research and development is somewhat of a black box. It's like you either know it or you need to talk to someone who's done it. And even then, they'll pass you on to 10 other people. And then you'll find out about maybe there are some certain suppliers you need to work with. The lack of transparency and available open source knowledge also is is pretty astounding. When I started digging into... Uh, what it would take to actually launch a food product out of sure curiosity no other reason uh, I was I was basically sent from one person to the other to just gather information right. so how right. do you gather right. that information into a tool?
0: Well we started that way. We were like <laughs> I mean, we launched a product called journey bites and we still release them to the market um, every like every quarter uh, These are essentially uh, smoothie cubes. Uh, we sell them Instacart, Amazon, and local grocery stores, and Shopify. And we learned a lot about how we wanted to build the user experience between suppliers and tracking nutrition data and other key elements of ingredients in, in the overall recipe. Um, but one thing that's been most exciting is that we actually have food scientists work in tandem with data scientists. And so we've created these sort of um, product system flows and product kingdoms where we essentially have an army of food scientists, mostly master's students, food scientists, and then food scientists that have worked at companies small and large, um, either on our uh, feedback committee or actually focused on different ingredient and product categories. So we'll have a team of food scientists go out and say, this would be the process to make a chocolate bar. Uh, to switch out a chocolate ingredient to make it, you know, lower sugar or, you know, lower water use or, you know, just go through all of these different scenarios and we map those scenarios and then we basically turn them into different, uh, we use different machine learning models. And then our data scientists go out and find data from literally everywhere, whether they're our partners or are existing customers, whether we're scraping different sites, whether we're building APIs from Google or SAP or you know many other partners, and we're pairing that data on top of those sort of um, food scientists brain flows,
1: and so your end customers, um, I guess, a good use case could be anyone from a, a company the size of Nestle or Unilever who are looking to uh, potentially reformulate an entire. Uh, category of products or at least sort of, I guess, A-B test different formulations, uh, I guess mm-hmm. if you could use that term, uh, to see how they could improve the nutritional value and or sustainability. Is that one use case? Um,
0: yeah. Yes, definitely. So, so so the use case, so the way that the experience works is we first provide you with the what. So what are the alternative formulations or alternative ingredients based on those goals and then what's the how? How, how? how do you process it and who can, you know, which suppliers can get that for you? And so um, that was key to the experience because we were trying to build the most actionable database and sort of food and uh, supply chain innovation. And if we just help you lower the amount of trials that you go through to make a gluten-free cookie, that's one thing. But then there's a lot of black holes, as, as you mentioned, with like finding the cost and the supplier and the processing and co-packing facilities and all those things. And so, um, I'm grateful that we've been able to apply grants and venture capital and customer revenue to just trying to build out the the strongest, most robust um, data science team we can to focus on both the what and the how of formulation improvements. And, um, you know, at times it can be challenging because you still get pushback from people on like sensory and all these things. But what we found is that at least when the industry average was, you know, 30, 60, 100 trials um, before, before um, you know, getting you know a winner to go to the market, we can decrease that uh, to just a few. And so we're, we're, we're lowering timelines by a lot.
1: And that's huge for a company for for a large food conglomerate. I mean, that's not a small. It's a cost saving more than anything else. It's time saving um, and potentially uh, minimizing the need for excessive resources being deployed to sort of find out information that that should be ideally have been made available. Um, I totally see that. Is it also something that um, you find CPG food startups or? incubators or VC funds are looking into as a way to sort of test out different formulations?
0: Yeah, increasingly, we have partnered with more VC funds to present to their startups. Um, You know, today, startups are spending a lot of time on Google, a lot of time talking to food science consultants, a lot of time talking to co-packers and manufacturers on like, what they should do, Um, especially if they have a little bit of like, friends and family, angel money, like they're not trying to spend $30,000 in a year to get the product on the market when they're just trying to build their community and newsletter lists and send the product out to Amazon. Um, and so we're finding as we collect more data that we can serve um, earlier and earlier companies uh, without taking too much of our sort of like operational time. They ask a lot of questions, we throw them in a Slack channel and we try to streamline that as much as possible. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of questions to ask as a startup Yeah, testing out a new product. But one thing that I do know, and I know will pass this, is you don't have the money and the time to spend as a new founder, maybe making a new green beverage or plant-based, I don't know, like goat. I, I'm i saying plant-based goat because I really want to help someone launch this company to carry goat into the market, plant-based. But... Um, you don't have those resources and time, and you just have this idea, and you know that like other people are doing. And so we really, we really want to serve them as much as possible, and we're really getting to that point. Um, and so the, the additional costs come in when it's spending our food scientist time outside of like product development, and more so on customer success, and also um, in food and ingredient categories that we have less data on. So we sort of have this priority list based on like where the market's going and where we think the market's going. But then we want to spend more time on like baby food and dog food and those things. And so if we have a customer that comes in with um, in a category that we have less depth in. We have to just spend a little bit more onboarding time. But we're definitely crossing a lot of those barriers like every month.
1: Yeah, it's such a... I mean, it's such a fascinating area. You're almost like organizing the world intelligence uh, and data as it relates to developing food products uh, with, I guess, traceability added onto it. Um, and then I can totally see how once you add in not just the nutritional information of different food ingredients, but are then able to identify suppliers and then Perhaps to a certain extent, some suppliers might have data available around uh, sustainability metrics. You can you can really develop a pretty over the years. This will take time, obviously. Mm-hmm. Develop some robust reporting capabilities also for companies. Pretty much right. all in one box, right? Um, I can totally see the yeah, application. Yeah, I, I mean,
0: we're definitely already getting some interesting sort of like acquisition and merger calls, like those. <laughs> increase quarterly, um, I mean, our, our team is just head down, like trying to find the data because I've gone through this. Like I, I'm i a serial entrepreneur and I've invested, I'm now an angel investor in startup food startups, but I also worked at a venture capital fund that's pretty large. And I've seen this problem over and over again, year after year after year. And there's even like some of your top startups that are getting several million dollars in funding are still going through these same supply chain and development issues, and they're they're they have just a few more resources from their like venture firm or their legal firm, um, but they're still taking time to fi- figure these things out. And so, um, what that shows me is that um, the competitive nature in the food industry is is continuous, <laughs> for a very long time. And people would rather focus on the small bit of margins than Mm -hmm. to just like really solve this thing. And that's why I think we need a little bit more sort of infrastructure infusion. Like the next infrastructure bill should go really focus on food um, and, and manufacturing. I'm excited that I think what we will have in the next few years is more manufacturing and ingredient procurement from North America generally. Um, and I think Mexico and Canada are going to have a lot of success in, in making our food products, um, but a lot of people don't want to let that information go because they feel like they don't have that power anymore. I I talked to a firm. I mean, I won't name them, but there there is forty five billion dollar global food company and. The, Someone on the on our call when we were onboarding them said, you know, like, just make her name look Like Trudy has all this information. You know, she's been around for twenty years. I was like, well, it's COVID. Like we don't know what's going to happen to Trudy. Like, why What do you have to like get all the information from Trudy? Like you everyone knows this brand around the world. Uh, and so it's just so interesting to me how this information is kept and, and what's going to change over the next few years.
1: Yeah, I mean, as someone myself worked in the tech industry before I got interested in food, I was, you know, frankly shocked at how archaic everything works in the food industry. And so, you know, while everything doesn't truly translate well from tech to food, and, you know, by no means am I saying that food food startups should all uh, pretend to operate like tech startups, I think we can end up making some big mistakes when we do that. But at the same time, there are several areas where there's, there are there's need for efficiency efficiencies. There's need for data sharing. That it just doesn't happen in this industry. It's sort of a people go to trade shows and they you know you have to go and one on one conversations with people and they'll connect you with Trudy or whoever and uh, and it's all kind of just a little strange. And I think I, it, it's only a matter of time before that that whole thing needs to get disrupted. Um, and no no powerful force. No force as powerful as, as data and, and intelligent data to do that. So, I totally see the potential there. I have one sort of a more philosophical theoretical question, um, and the reason I bring this up because I'm I'm I have a feeling you'll have some insights on it. Uh, Two previous guests um, on this podcast have brought this up, and I've never explored it in depth as a separate topic, and maybe we won't have time to go into details, but the first was John Mackey. When I asked him about um, the future of food, he mentioned he thinks the future really is all about traceability. You'd be able to pick up a package of food and know exactly who grew it, where it came from. Um, and he didn't go into details about how that would come about, but he said that's that's where, where we're headed, complete transparency. There's Manufacturers will not be able to hide anything. And then the late Greg Steltenpol from Calafia Farms, when he was on the podcast, uh, said something similar but went a step further and said, blockchain technology and the the future of blockchain as it relates to uh, traceability and transparency in food supply chains is going to revolutionize the food industry i have a feeling you have some thoughts on that (laughs) what is what is your take on on the ability of of blockchain to play a role here i don't claim to know enough about it um, but i'm guessing this is completely within your wheelhouse
0: yeah, you know, the first time I was presented opportunity to build blockchain into one of my startups, I was kicking myself for a couple of years. And I feel like, <laughs> before, I, before it was acquired, I was like, "We really should have added more blockchain." And I mean, I'm I'm all in. Um, we're doing some testing now with some partners on blockchain, um, sort of tracking recipe versions and other things that will announce. Um, and I don't I don't need to keep it a secret because like. At least publicly, I'm starting to talk more in in groups. I'm, you know, sort of becoming um, or or at least joining or being requested to join like Web3 and crypto and blockchain groups Um, because I absolutely, and, and that's just me investing and buying like NFTs and digital art and other things. The more I spend time on it, and then the more I look at what the food industry is doing, and talking to partners, and seeing it done with like art and music, and I hope soon with things like purchasing a home, um, it's just an like absolute no-brainer. And you mentioned the you mentioned open source earlier, and that's just something that we need a, to truly infuse into the. Food system. A lot of people are scared and sort of, as you mentioned, sort of haven't brought tech to the fold in ways because in, it can be dangerous. But absolutely, when it comes to logistics and to um, supply chain, I don't think there's any turning back. Um, and I think we're going to see it aligns to as soon as possible. I think. You can question like who cares, like how much does a consumer care about traceability when what they're gonna listen to is how they feel more than ever and the costs, right? Like we were thinking, oh, we need it to be like, yeah, you know, like ethically sourced and all those things. I think those are secondary to like seeing true impact on your body, your pocket, and then like next environment. Um, but in terms of B2B, it's, it's absolutely viable option and something that we're going to have to build as much as possible. And for the companies that are already building that infrastructure, they're going to have tremendous growth in the next two, three years.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I'm going to close out with one forward looking question. And, and again, I'm very intrigued by how you're going to approach this because of your your unique position with Journey Foods in terms of the, the place you play in the food industry, which is so much around data and you know being able to use it and your technology to uh, influence not just what big food companies do and how they use data to actually create more nutritious and sustainable foods, but also for new companies as they start to uh, develop Uh, potentially breakthrough products that are using novel ingredients and discovering suppliers and markets for it that they didn't know previously existed, but now know about it thanks to your tool. Looking ahead at the year 2050, if uh, the journey of journey foods, uh, terrible pun, but (laughs) if it goes as you envision it to go, what do you think the the food system will look like in the year 2050 what is your best case scenario what would you like to see uh when you're describing the food system of 2050 given the work that's been put in over the years
0: yeah um we will go back to a level of that biodiversity there's a few answers that we will go back to a level of biodiversity we haven't seen in probably a couple hundred years i hope um And I can totally see that as more people embrace the fact that um, there's sort of two ways to look at GMO. There's like GMO for fighting against climate change and like making sure that the crops can like last longer. And there's companies that are doing that well, like Appeal Sciences, right? They don't have to change the quality or the biodiversity or the, the sort of the, the love, if you will, of that, that produce item. And there's then GMO to, like, create pretty things that are, you know, pink pineapples and other things. Um, and that's less needed. Like, if we use GMO to bring that biodiversity back, great. If we need to figure out the better ways to process foods to make them withstand climate change, That's great, but we need to think about the fact that, like, more and more people are going to be open to not eating the Nickelodeon meals, if you will. (laughs) Um, So there's that. There's interesting ways to uh, approach biodiversity. Um, As we think about the way work and education is changing, more and more people we we will have sort of this deconstruction of the unified sort of westernized food pyramid it'll be a lot more personalized for every student and group and you'll see a lot more nutrigenetics nutrigenomics study go inflow going into how we structure our meals at school and work and on planes and other things, and we'll be able to meet logistically that diversity and variation. And then finally, because of a lot of these changes, if we don't have just like a nuclear winter uh, with environment, <laughs> mm-hmm. um will solve a lot of the issues in the chronic disease. You know, I, I I honestly believe food is the number one killer in the world. And I hope by 2050 and can see that if we can curb like one in three people becoming diabetic because of the foods and, and processes that we have, then that number will probably shift down to where, you know, not a billion people being directly affected by the foods we eat, but hopefully, like you know, two hundred million or something like that.
1: That that will be a, a significant improvement from where we are trending these days. So um, I do think that in that in itself, the final point you raised is reason enough to keep building what you're building, Rihanna. I appreciate your time today. Really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Thank you so much. Ian.
1: been listening to eat for the planet with nil zacharias if you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support all you have to do is subscribe to the show and rate and review it to learn more about this podcast or my work go to eftp.co that's eftp.co thank you for listening